This is an ABC podcast. Just a quick note, this episode touches on the topic of suicide. Take care while listening. Growing up, not in her wildest dreams, did Alex Willard think she'd one day be Dr. Alex Willard, a PhD. I grew up quite poor. And uh, when I say poor, I mean very poor. So we were living in housing commission and, you know, we had handouts from the Salvation Army. And my mum, single mum, worked a lot to provide for four children. And to make things a little more complex, uh, my two brothers are autistic and my sister has some pretty complex uh, medical needs as well. So things were pretty tough growing up, and no one in her family had ever been to university. It wasn't on my radar, I guess. To top it all off, her teenage years would bring the biggest challenge, a traumatic event that would turn her family's life upside down and send her mental health spiralling. Yeah, it was a really... I'm, I'm trying to think of the word, but, you know, it was devastating, it was distressing. My life changed If I had continued the way that I was going, I I don't think I would be alive today. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Alex says what she experienced as a teenager could be classified as a medical trauma or vicarious trauma. And now as an adult, she researches various forms of childhood trauma as part of her work. I'm Dr. Alex Woolard. I am a research fellow at the Telephone Kids Institute and the University of Western Australia in Perth. It's one hell of a story arc. So today, how Alex is channeling her past into her present research. It's funny, talking to people growing up, we try to relate to one another and I think, you know, people have told me that, yeah, yeah, no, I understand, you know, My parents had to go out without coffee sometimes or, you know, they didn't go out for breakfast that week. It was a little different for us and I'm sure a lot of people can relate. You know, we didn't get new clothes very often. We didn't really get, you know, big Christmas presents or anything like that. But we did get, you know, a lot of love. Mum, you know, very loving mother, is really just a warm, beautiful person. So that was, you know, that's important. That's yeah. a really important thing growing up. So we did certainly have that. And mum was really a great provider in that sense. And were you aware as a child that you were poor? You know, it's really funny. I wasn't up until I think high school. I don't remember ever thinking that. And then when I went to high school, I kind of, you start comparing yourself to, mm. to other kids. And that's when I started to notice, oh, you know, I don't have the new shoes or I don't have um, the new backpack or whatever. And that's when I started to, to notice that there was a difference in the way that I was growing up. That realisation made Alex self-conscious. But she didn't have long to dwell on that, because Alex's mum, her stable, warm, protective mum, was starting to change. I look back and I do realise that there were warning signs. So mum would drop me off at the wrong school and we Mm. kind of just thought it was like, oh, it's a mum moment. You know, she's just really busy and kind of laughed it off. She would put things in the microwave that didn't belong there, like, you know, documents Mm. or like her wallet or whatever. And um, she forgot how to use the washing machine one time, which was quite stressful for me because I didn't know how to use it. (laughs) Um, So those were kind of leading up to the diagnosis. And then when I was 14, my mum was diagnosed with early onset dementia, which was just, it 
it rocked my world. Mm. It was um, a really devastating diagnosis and a real period of uncertainty for our family. And I just remember not knowing what was going on and I think that took up a lot of my brain space. Mm. So wasn't really focusing on the living situation. I kind of went into fight or flight and I had to very quickly grow up and start to provide care for mum and, and my siblings. At the time, Alex's brothers were 13 and 6, and her sister was 5. Her mother was just 35. So she's one of the, the youngest in Australia to have been diagnosed. And initially, doctors thought what she had was Alzheimer's, giving her just five years to live. Which was really devastating as a teenager to think, you know, mum's got five years left, what am I going to do? Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, so it turns out that um, we think it's vascular dementia because she's had a few strokes. So every time she has a stroke, it gets a little bit worse. After the diagnosis, she actually became, like her symptoms were, were quite bad. Mm. So I, I used to hate nap time. <laughs> so she, she would get quite tired and have a nap. But every time she woke up from a nap, she wouldn't be lucid. So she wouldn't know where she was. So she has some tattoos and she thought that people you know, broke into the house and tattooed her while she was asleep and we need to catch them, we need to catch them. That used to be really, really stressful, really stressful time. And to be honest, it's really funny because this kind of relates to some of the research that I do. I actually can't remember too much before that now. Oh, wow. Like that was such a big part of my life and such a a massive moment that before that it kind of just fades now. In the months after her mother's diagnosis, Alex's mental health took a dive, and the coping strategies she was starting to cling to weren't helping. I developed pretty bad anxiety and depression um, in the years following mum's diagnosis. I think what happened was I was struggling to control my life. Like, I'd had this really traumatic, really, diagnosis, this event that happened, and I had no control over it. So the only thing that I could control was kind of my internal experience. Mm -hmm. And the compulsive thoughts were around, if you don't do this, your mum will die. So it makes, it makes a lot of sense, right? You know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm facing this, this huge diagnosis and and mum is terminally ill. That makes a lot of sense. It all fits. And so my brain was telling me that, you know, if I don't stay completely clean. If I don't wash my hands after I touch things, then I will give mum some sort of uh, germ, bacteria, and she'll die. So I was washing my hands a lot. I didn't touch things. I often was checking things around the house, so just making sure things were turned off, just in case, you know, I I blew up the house, (laughs) which is, you know, it's... Logically doesn't really make much sense, but that was me trying to control my environment so that I didn't hurt anyone. Alex carried on like this for two years before she finally sought help and got a diagnosis of Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, OCD. She was 16 at this point, and she says her psychologist saved her life. I thought that, you know, I was just losing my grip. I thought that, you know, I was just a, a weirdo and I just thought I was there was something wrong with me. And seeing this psychologist, she really made me realise that it's there's nothing wrong with me. I'm coping as best I can. It was honestly life-changing for me, I think, seeing this woman. And she just provided this really warm, safe environment for me to 
just talk about everything, talk about the active grieving process as well, which was grieving someone who was alive. It's an awful, awful thing to have to do. And having someone explain what was happening and just having that kind of validation she provided for me was just honestly a game changer. Did someone nudge you to get help? Like who was in your life that was providing any support up until this point? You know, was it all just on your own shoulders? It was kind of just on my own shoulders at the time. I was too embarrassed to tell any friends about it. I think that first appointment, you know, I I went through my GP and I kind of hinted that I maybe wasn't feeling very well, Mm. went to see the psychologist. And you know what? The first appointment, I remember doing the same thing. I kind of like talked around the the problem and she saw right through me and (laughs) that's a sign of a, a good psychologist. And when you said she saved your life, did you go to a dark enough place where suicidality was a thing that was, you know, on your mind? Yeah, I I do think that she saved my life because if I had continued the way that I was going, I I don't think I would be alive today. Wow. I think that it would have I I think I would have ended up taking my own life. Mm. Gosh, Alex, I'm I'm so glad you were able to get the help you were able to get. I mean, is that quite rare though cuz I, you know, access to mental health care is a huge struggle in this country, let alone for a teenager spearheading their own care. You know, was the help you got quite rare? I think now it is. Unfortunately, Australia is facing this huge mental health crisis and wait times to see a psychiatrist right now are about 18 months. Mm -hmm. Luckily back then, although I say luckily, I'm not sure if it is actually lucky. I think that people just didn't seek help back then in the Mm. same way that we do now. But back then, I was lucky enough to be seeing a GP who was bulk-billed and then my psychologist was also bulk-billed and I think that's actually quite rare nowadays. I think there are some services that provide like um, group therapy which can be bulk-billed or on a volunteer basis, but it is incredibly difficult right now to, to get in with someone and that is if you can get in with someone and if you can afford it, I think... Mental health care can be out of reach for a lot of people. So Alex was able to get mental health support at a crucial time when she really needed it. And the experience didn't just save her life, it would change the direction of her whole life. I remember sitting in that that office, you know, towards the end where I really felt like, oh my God, I'm I feel better. I feel like I'm not in constant distress. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is this is what I need to do with my life. I need to help people in the way that she helped me. And so I, I don't even know how I, I, I got into university. I just, pure grit, I think. Mm. And, you know, I was the first person in my family to finish high school even. And it did seem at the time a very far off goal. I didn't know if I'd be able to achieve it, but I did have some really great friends. I had some really great teachers as well, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, one of my passions now is educating teachers on trauma-informed practice because I really had some teachers that I think knew that my background was a little bit tricky. There was some complexity there and they really just showed me the support that I needed to get through. And so I finished high school and then... um, applied for university and I, I still kind of thought, how, how am I going to do this? There's no way I'm going to get in and got in. And I guess the rest is kind of history. Just kept, I just kept going. 
Yeah. That's that's amazing. I mean, prior to seeing that psychologist, like, did you always have an ambition to, you know, try to go to university as the first person in your family who would do that? Like, did you always have this element of ambition? I think I can't remember talking about university with my family at all. Like, no one had been to university, so I, I, it was nothing. It wasn't on my radar, I guess. And I knew I'd, I'd always been somewhat academic. I'd always tried at school. I like reading and mum was very supportive of me reading a lot. She would take me to the library and, and we'd get books and those sorts of things. But I can't ever remember thinking I'm going to be an academic or I'll, I'll do <laughs> re- I certainly did not think I would be doing research, that's for sure. I don't think I was particularly ambitious, but I think that I am a bit of a bleeding heart and I want to help people. And this is the way that I've (laughs) found that I can do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And so fast forward to now, you run a lab researching childhood trauma. Let's talk about trauma. What are some of the common causes of trauma in childhood? I think most people think of abuse, but it's broader than that, right? Yeah, it definitely is. And just so that everyone is aware, there are kind of two parts to a trauma diagnosis, right? So when we think about trauma, it's a traumatic event. But when we're actually talking about trauma in this sense, we're talking about traumatic stress. So the emotional and psychological impact of a traumatic event. It involves usually one type of event or a lot of events, complex events, and then having symptoms that impact your functioning. So that's what we're talking about here. And there are many different types of events that can cause trauma or a traumatic stress response. So sometimes it's one incident, so we call it like a, a single incident trauma. And that's usually things like um, a really unexpected event, like a natural disaster or an act of violence like terrorism. And then, as you were saying before, when we think about complex trauma, it's usually ongoing. It's usually involving maltreatment, which is abuse and neglect. And then there are a couple of other types of trauma. So there's secondary trauma or vicarious trauma, which can impact emergency workers or health professionals. And this is when you hear about trauma and then that impacts your functioning. And then finally, there's intergenerational trauma, which is the impact of trauma being passed down from parent to child. Is it hard to identify kids who are dealing with trauma? What are are the signs? It's not hard if you are trauma-informed and if you've had training around trauma-informed practice. I think that, well, I know that a lot of the professionals that work with children don't feel confident in picking up trauma-related behaviours because they haven't been trained Mm. and they don't know what to do with that. So some of the work that we do at Telethon is improving education around what trauma can look like in kids. And it's really dependent on their age, where they're at. So it can look different depending on the child in front of you. But there are both behavioural and psychological symptoms that you can have a look out for. So behaviourally, things like hypervigilance, so being really jumpy and having a really high startle response, irritability and aggression, especially in really young kids who can't verbalise their experience, poor coping strategies like dissociation, which I can get into, and then psychologically there's often a loss of interest in things that are pleasurable and kind of a low mood, 
higher anxiety. And this may look different in children. So for really young kids, anxiety can sometimes look like tummy aches, mm-hmm. headaches. They can be really like quite physical. And then intrusive thoughts are, are quite common. Difficulty concentrating. So this is when we really need to start working with teachers to see if this is happening in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And things like not being able to remember the traumatic event and also flashbacks and nightmares. So these are things that that caregivers can look out for. One of the symptoms Alex mentioned there was dissociation. This is when a person detaches from their body and their environment. The lights are on and no one's home, which if you think about it, if a kid is in a really traumatic environment, it makes a lot of sense. You don't want to be there. Long term, though, she says it can lead to all sorts of issues. So if you think about a child who is not in their body, right, if they're in a classroom and they are not there, they are not paying attention, they're not learning, they aren't engaging in social interactions. So this can have really long-term downstream effects for pretty much everything. So they're, they're social relationships, romantic relationships, It can impact their academic achievement and then, you know, employment. And also we find uh, it's called a a cascade of trauma. So people who experience dissociation are often at higher risk of experiencing another traumatic event. So we really need to tackle dissociation when, you know, early on for that early prevention so that we make sure that these kids don't grow up to have these negative outcomes. How how common is dissociation as a as a symptom of or as a trauma response? Is it one of the more common ones, or sort of how does it stack up? It's really really hard to estimate how often this happens with kids. We know in adults who have experienced trauma, it's between two and twelve percent, but we just don't really have those estimates for kids. So this is the work that we're doing right now in my lab. What we're doing is uh, screening kids in the Perth metro area, assessing for trauma and then also assessing for symptoms of dissociation. And how do you screen for that? So what we do, so normally when a a child is coming in for a clinical assessment or working within a community clinic, they do an intake assessment anyway, a really comprehensive assessment of where the child is at. So really what we can do is slot into their normal intake. And so in terms of screening them, though, sort of drilling down to, like, really, what does it look like? Is it just asking them, do you disassociate, and describing what it's like? <laughs> no, we can't ask children if they dissociate. Some will know. You know, potentially some some young people, you know, 15, 16, they might recognise that they, they zone out and that's not normal. But uh, certainly with young children, I, I really doubt that they would be um, aware of what's happening, particularly if it's mm. happening a lot and that's all they know. So what we need to do is uh, we need to ask the families if they are still involved in care. We need to ask the people that are around the children. So the teachers, they see them for most of the day. Mm -hmm. And this will often also involve clinicians being clever in their questioning around the child's behaviours. So we do have screening tools that we use that ask specifically, you know, caregivers and teachers, does the child exhibit these behaviours? But often we need a little bit more than that. So we need clinicians to really drill down into the behaviours and and see if they line up with a traumatic experience or traumatic stress or other symptoms that may be indicative of dissociation. 
Did you ever experience dissociation as a teen or kid? Um, What were some of the trauma symptoms you had? I don't think that I experienced dissociation, um, or not that I can remember, but I know that I, I definitely had heightened anxiety and that hypervigilance and constant worry about the future. The OCD was certainly related to that experience. And I definitely had some low mood, mm. that's that's for sure, kind of feeling hopeless about the future. And, and I think that's really important to talk about, right, because it makes a lot of sense when you think about my situation. And a lot of people have been, you know, either in similar situations or been in situations that you know, they're really, they're tough and it makes a lot of sense that they respond in the way that they do, that they experience depression or anxiety or, you know, a break from reality. It all makes sense. And I think that as a community, we need to be more empathetic and understanding of why people are behaving the way they do. Mm. So we need to ask more questions like, why are you the way that you are? What happened? How can we help? Mm. I think that's really important in being able to tackle the stigma that is around mental health. Yeah. And so what kind of treatments are available for children who are dealing with some of these symptoms? You know, And what kind of treatments are your, is your lab researching? So this is the thing. There is evidence-based treatments available for adults who have experienced trauma, but the research into children isn't as progressed. So this is what we're trying to do at the moment in our lab. So the treatments that we use for adults are around kind of reprocessing the event and finding new ways of coping. So like trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy or CBT, uh, cognitive reprocessing, exposure therapy, uh, what we call EMDR, so eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy and narrative therapy. So what we're doing in our lab is we come up with intervention strategies that both are individually tailored, so they work with the child's current functioning and you know the symptoms that they're really struggling with, and we kind of try and tailor the different therapies that we know work with adults and we tailor them to the child. One example is how Alex's lab is tailoring narrative therapy to children who've suffered medical trauma. Which is kind of related to my story as well. So this is trauma arising from a chronic or terminal illness or an accident or injury. And so we're doing work with children at the moment who have sustained a burn injury. And this is a really traumatic uh, injury that, uh, that affects a lot of children across Australia. And we find often that the, the children who have sustained a burn, they have really great medical care, but there's no mental health support. And often these kids, uh, they wobble, mm. you know, a, a few months down the track. We have lots of, we've done a lot of um, interviews with families around their experiences and we find that usually within those first three months we find elevated anxiety, mood disturbances and and sometimes even post-traumatic stress disorder. And with narrative therapy, how how does that work? So what it involves is kind of accessing those trauma memories and reprocessing them in a way that you can speak about it and you can tell your story And often that takes a really long time because it's quite a stressful event. But what we find is that often when a traumatic event has happened, the part of your brain that controls language, it goes offline. So if you've heard of fight or flight before, Mm -hmm. this is what happens. So your what we call lizard brain, so Mm -hmm. the part of your brain that is involved in kind of survival, 
that takes over. So language goes offline and we find that particularly with young kids, they really struggle to verbalise what has happened to them because their brain wasn't working in that way at the time. And that can be quite distressing, particularly if people are asking around the event and they just don't know how to say it. Mm. So often we find that if we work with a therapist to try and verbalise what has happened and tell your own story, and perhaps that means, you know, strengths-based construction of a story that they can tell people, that can often help kids feel better about what has happened. Right. So it sounds like at the moment you're tailoring adult therapies for, yeah, individual kids. Uh, Is that what it's like across the country? It's a little bit ad hoc or are there no standardised treatments? I think the most standardised treatment for children is the trauma-focused CBT, Mm. which certainly is evidence-based. There have been some really nice randomised controlled trials with child populations. But with the other types of therapies, we're still kind of in those like the early stages where we see some positive change, but we really need to have more evidence around the, you know, we need to have more pilot trials, we need Mm. to have more interventions run. And really, this isn't just Australia, this is worldwide. So we need more trauma research. This is what we're trying to do in our lab, but we need to kind of catch up to the adult literature. How has working in the child trauma space helped you make sense of your own childhood or process your own childhood? Yeah, I think I have been on a little bit of a journey over the last few years uh, since kind of finishing my PhD. I think a lot of things have, have kind of slotted into place and I've become, I think, gentler on myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, you know, growing up, I've I've been really hard on myself and I, you know, I, I've had to be because I just, you know, you look after everybody else, you look after yourself last. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. But delving into the reasons why we do what we do and how adversity shapes us has given me insight into my own life. And yeah, I think now I, I just kind of hold space for myself a little more. I'm very open about my experiences now. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have done this, <laughs> you know, 10 years ago. Right. But I'm very open now because I recognise that I was really lucky in having a really supportive group of friends and loved ones who helped push me to to seek help, um, you know, in my later 20s. And I think a lot of people don't don't have that. So I want to be that person. I want to be open and tell people that it's okay to struggle. You can still be, Mm -hmm. you know, a whole functioning person. You can still be worthwhile and struggle sometimes. That's very normal. Yeah. How is your mum now? Yeah, she's okay. She's 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 okay. It's hard because I I've moved across the country. I live in Perth now, and she often doesn't realize that I'm over there or she forgets. So that can be a little bit tricky sometimes, but she's still the warm, loving, beautiful person that raised me, and my siblings are doing really well. Particularly my one brother, I'm so proud of him. You know, he he was non-verbal until he was five wow. and now he doesn't shut up. <laughs> he has a job and he's, he, he performs as a drag queen. So it's just, you know, he's got this confidence about him and I'm just like, oh, makes me tear up when I think about him. I'm just so proud of him. Yeah. And it's been 15 years since your mother's diagnosis? Yeah, yep. So it's been 15 years. And so you mentioned back when you were a teen and she was first diagnosed, you know, you guys thought it was Alzheimer's and you thought she had maybe five years left and... That would have been so shocking. 
How do you think about and process her mortality now? Like, how do you make sense of and make peace with where your mum is at and what her future holds? It's been a really long journey of grieving her while she's been alive. I've now come to a point where I just try and make the most of the moments that we have, you know, whether that be dancing in the kitchen to Fleetwood Mac mm. or, you know, going and get a, getting a pedicure or, you know, just those little things that bring joy. And I can see that they still bring her joy. Mm. I think I really try to remember that and cling on to those moments, particularly when things can get really tough. Yeah. That's Dr. Alex Woolard, research fellow at the Telethon Kids Institute in WA. Alex was one of the top five science residents here at ABC Science this year. The top five science residency brings early career researchers in the STEM fields to the ABC to learn about how the media works and how to communicate their work. That's it for All in the Mind. Thanks to producer Rose Kerr and sound engineer Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Sana Kadar. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.